0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for leading us down the roads you have led us on to lead us to this point. This week was full of joy for some of us. This week was full of heartache for some of us. This week was full of hard work, sweat, tears. Lord, we thank you that you you were with us every step of the way and that you continue to be with us every step of the way. We thank you that you move, you lead, you change hearts. You are the way maker, as we sang about. You are always moving, always working, even when it doesn't seem like it. Help us to trust in knowing that you always have a plan and you're always doing something in our lives. And we can look back on our lives five years ago, ten years ago, longer than that, and see, you know what? I am not the same person I once was. The Holy Spirit has changed me. I'm a different person now. I know he's going to continue to change me to make me even more and more like the image of his son. We thank you for your word that empowers us to live like that through your Holy Spirit. That you open our spiritual eyes to to so many truths and treasures that are deep within these words. That these words are life. That they are what sustain us and, and keep us going. So Lord, I pray a special blessing upon this time this morning. That you would receive all the glory as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope all of you have had your morning coffee already and maybe even a second cup by this point because I have some designs I wanna show you that may make you wish you had that second cup. So if anybody runs out to go to Dunkin' Donuts down here, I'll understand why. But you may or may not, you may or may not have seen these already. So if you have, please be a good sport and don't ruin it for everyone else, all right? All right, here's the first image. These lines look crooked, right? they they certainly look crooked that's what our initial reaction is would you believe me if I told you that these lines are actually parallel and it's the way that the squares are laid out in between them that cause them to appear crooked to us whether or not you believe me that's the truth so that's what's really going on here next up is this now I'm gonna ask you to do a little work for this one move your eyes across that whole image there, to kind of dart them back and forth. Does it look like different groups of those seeds are rotating a little bit as you dart your eyes? It may not show up the same way here, but that's, that, that's another uh, illusion with this. That when we dart our eyes around, it looks like different groups of these seeds are rotating here. But we all know this isn't a video. This is just an image. So again, that's just... The the seeds aren't actually moving. That's just how it appears to us. And lastly, I got a, a very important question for you here. How many colors are in this image? It would appear to be four, right? Orange, sort of a magenta, blue, and green, right? There are actually only three colors in this image. And the blue and the green color would appear... Two different colors to us are actually the same exact color. It just looks different because of the colors that are going uh, striped in between them. In reality, all three of these images I just showed you are designed to be one way, but our brain interprets them differently from the way they actually are. On the flip side, uh, our brain thinks something to be a certain way, when in reality, outside of the way our brains are functioning there's something much differently going on it's the same way with spiritual concepts to someone whose spiritual eyes have not been opened yet until that happens our human brains will just not be able to wrap our minds around these spiritual concepts More specific to our passage this morning, in Jesus' continued conversation with this particular Samaritan woman, he is describing a truth to her in spiritual language and she keeps thinking about it in a physical sense. Her brain just cannot get wrapped around this. What does this teach us about responding to spiritual truths, and specifically how we view and relate to God? If you remember from the last couple of weeks in Jesus' next step in his mission, he enters the region of Samaria. If you can't see this, because you're sitting way in the far back, I encourage you to sit uh, more forward next time so you can see this. That's my shameless plug for that. All right, we'll move on from that. Okay, you can see here we have a very Jewish, primarily Jewish, Judea down here. you got Jerusalem, you got a lot of the cities that we know of. Uh, that are familiar to us down here in Judea. Then you have another primarily Jewish section up here in Galilee. Again, a lot of where Jesus did his ministry. Sandwiched and smack dab in between these two regions is the region of Samaria. For hundreds of years, there was a lot of hatred and discrimination between the Samaritan people, those from Samaria, and the Jewish people of Judea and Galilee. I covered the background and the why of that in my messages over the past couple of weeks, which are both on our website and podcasts, so I'm not going to cover all of that again. But suffice it to say, by human standards, Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. In fact, most Jewish people didn't. They would purposely cross over the Jordan River here, go up through Perea, the Decapolis, and then up through Galilee and vice versa. They would completely bypass this entire area so they wouldn't even have to breathe the same air as the Samaritans. But by God's standards, Jesus had to pass through Samaria as John records for us in chapter 4, verse 4. Not only was it Jesus' mission to bring his message of salvation, love, and truth to the Samaritan people and thereby break down man-made barriers that had existed for hundreds of years, but Jesus had a God-given mission to take this message to a particular person. This particular person was ostracized by both the Jewish people for being a Samaritan and by her own Samaritan people because of the way she lived her life. Now what do I mean by this? This woman was known by her fellow townspeople as being sexually promiscuous. This wasn't a rumor either, it was the truth. You may remember from last week, that I said that saying she slept through half the town wasn't much of an exaggeration. And back in this day, even the Samaritan culture, this was a huge social stigma. In fact, John records for us in verse 6 that she was at Jacob's well, drawing up water when Jesus arrives, exhausted from the, his journey. This would have been noon, and in the Middle East, the hottest part of the day, just like how it is around here in the summer. This woman was only at the well at the worst part of the day to get water for herself and not have to deal with all the sideways glances and the insults and the boxing out by the other women of the town. Jesus asks her for a drink and she is shocked. That this obvious Jewish rabbi whose disciples had just left to go buy food in town would speak to her as a Samaritan and especially as a promiscuous Samaritan woman. When she responds as such, Jesus tells her that if she knew who she was talking to, she would ask him for living water. Water that would cause her to never thirst again. And last week we talked about how Jesus is simply referencing the Old Testament with this reference. With living water representing the spiritual rest, hope, joy, sustenance, and peace for one's soul. All of which has God as its only source. You can't get it from anywhere else anyone else or anything else this world has to offer it can and does only come from God the very creator of our souls by Jesus making this statement that this living water is a gift from him not only directly connects him as the source of this living water but is also a confirmation that he is equal to God the Father as the source. This living water is further connected to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as the third member of the Trinity to be the source of it in John chapter 7. And in connection with that, in chapter four fourteen, the Holy Spirit will be the never-ending bubbling source of this for our souls. This never-ending bubbling spring of rest, joy, hope, sustenance and peace for our souls will then result in eternal life as Jesus point blank states in verse 14. What a tremendous gift we've been given as believers, isn't it? But as we'll see in our passage this morning, like those optical illusions we began our time with, the woman continues to think of what Jesus is talking about purely a physical, talking about in a certain way, a purely physical way, when in reality, Jesus is speaking about something entirely different, a spiritual truth. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 15. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 4, verse 15, or look this up on your Bible app on your smartphone. We're going to start in verse 15, and we read, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Like finding out Jesus is holding, uh, uh, extending a winning Mega Millions jackpot lottery ticket, she says, what are you waiting for? Give that to me right now. Not only does this woman not actually get what Jesus is describing and offering to her, but there is this complete neglect that anything needs to change in her life in order to receive it. This right here, is a perfect illustration for what a lot of people walking around this world truly believe. They truly believe that as long as they believe in God or simply just in some kind of higher power, that's good enough. They see no reason to repent of anything, and if you tell them they need to repent, they immediately get offended. How dare you, is usually the response, whether or not that's vocalized. If you tell the random person on the street that it's not enough to just believe in God and that they need to be saved from something, themselves, their sin, God's judgment on them, and ultimately hell, the best of what you can hope for is a polite smile and then walking away, right? (laughs) Repentance, as we've seen through the Gospel of John and the whole New Testament, is the crucial first step to salvation, One must see what they need to be saved from. Their own sin in order to be saved and therefore be given a justified and righteous standing before God. And so that's exactly how Jesus responds. He doesn't indulge this woman's blind assumption that she just gets eternal life because she never killed anybody. Repentance and surrender to God must come First, no matter who you are. We see see this move in Jesus' response. He cuts right to the point. Verses 16 through 18. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said, Truly, We know from the end of John chapter 2 that Jesus, as God, knew what was in the heart of everyone he had interaction with. So it's no surprise whatsoever that Jesus goes straight for this woman's biggest struggle with sin. In addition, Jesus only mentions the men this woman had relations with that she actually got married to. There may have been many more men that she didn't marry and many acts of adultery during her several marriages. I mean, that would explain why she was married, divorced, and remarried so many times in her adult lifetime. In fact, the man she's cohabitating with at the moment, she hasn't bothered to get married to yet. Now, before we start judging this woman, like everyone else around her did, and start labeling her and calling her names, we have no clue what she's been through. The way she had been living her life, for most of it, may have been the result of abuse or fatherly abandonment or some way of coping with something traumatic that happened in her life, just like someone who lives a similar life today may have a background of. We have no clue as to the why, but at the same time, it was still sin. It still needed to be dealt with. It still needed to be repented of. We can see that God chose to have Jesus talk to this particular woman because her sin was pretty glaring. And to show that no one's sin or level of sin is too great for God to forgive and save from, nor is it too late to get right with God and to do something about it to bring it in line with what God's standards in his word are. There's a lesson for us in that as well. Whether it's sexual sin, because that's directly connected to today's passage, and what I mean by that is any kind of sexual relationship with someone you're not married to, like this woman, or that isn't in agreement with God's blueprint of marriage between one man and one woman, or it's some kind of other sin, it's never too late. To repent of that and get that right before God it's never too late it still needs to be repented of and to do something about it to bring it in line with God's standards as we know with human nature what help what happens when we get called out for something if it's not straight up anger or resentment it's usually trying to change the subject right That's just our natural human response. That's exactly what this woman does in response. Verses 19 through 20. The woman said to him, see this has absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus just said. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Do you see this? Jesus tells her point blank what she needs to repent of, and she entirely tries to change the subject. Instead of making any reference to what was just told to her, she thinks quickly on her feet. She can obviously tell that this guy is a prophet of some kind, for who else who just showed up out of nowhere and didn't know her at all would know that information about her? So she tries to use that realization to distract this prophet. She asks an age-old question that had caused a rift between the Samaritans and Jewish people for hundreds of years. If you remember, when the Jewish people were allowed to return to decimated Judah after their exile in Babylon... Instead of helping the Jewish people rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, they actively opposed them and instead built their own temple, set up their own system of worship, and created their own priesthood in Samaria. They even took things one step further and declared that they, not the Jewish people, were the chosen people from Abraham. The mountain that the woman is referring to is Mount Gerizim, which is noted by one biblical scholar was within eyesight from where she and Jesus are at Jacob's well, where the Samaritans had built their temple. Jesus sees right through this woman's red herring response and answers her question, but does so in a way that directs her back to that living water, through repentance and salvation that he had started the conversation off with at the very beginning. Verse 21. See, he doesn't bash her over the head with anything. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Not only is Jesus declaring that the point is not on where God should be worshipped, but he's also making a declaration and a coming shift in the entire way one worshipped God. For thousands of years, God had been worshipped through sacrifice, starting all the way back with Adam and Eve's family. Why were Abel and Cain making sacrifices to God in the first place, which precipitated Cain, killing his own brother, out of anger over it? Because that is how one worshipped God. That practice eventually became a part of the tabernacle and then temple ordinances with several different sacrifices for different reasons becoming part of the law God gives to Moses. King David wanted to build a temple in his worship of God, but his son Solomon was the one to actually build it. This was the same temple that housed the Ark of the Covenant and held a copy of the Book of the Law within its walls. This was the temple that people came from all over the world to marvel at and worship the one true God in. This temple was technically supposed to be the correct temple. But it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then, while the Samaritans were busy opposing the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple and building their own temple in Mount Gerizim, the Jewish exiles who had returned to Judah built what became known as the second temple. Herod the Great of Christmas fame, later expanded on this second temple for 40 years. The same temple that Jesus visited and threw out the money changers from. This was, by human standards, the correct temple, not the Samaritans one. My point is this, that none of that actually mattered as what Jesus is describing to this woman. Jesus was looking beyond how things currently were at that moment of that conversation with a temple in Jerusalem and a counterfeit temple in Samaria and declared that neither of them actually mattered for there would be a time when neither one would even exist. In so declaring, Jesus was saying that even when neither temple would any longer exist, That did not mean worship of God would cease to exist. No, for worship of God was beyond the existence of a temple or a synagogue for that matter or anything that happened in them. At the same time, Jesus wanted to be very clear that the messianic message of salvation came through the Jewish bloodline. Again, verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. All the promises that were made to Abraham would ultimately be fulfilled in the new covenant. The one which Jesus would establish through his death and resurrection. And as we talked about on the day after Christmas this past year, it was the Jewish bloodline that the Messiah was to come from and and did come from. As Paul would talk about later, it was the Jewish people who were entrusted the original prophecies of the Messiah and the Messianic King. And in connection with this conversation, Jesus is having with this woman, not the Samaritan bloodline. Jesus didn't do this to slight the Samaritan people, but to make a clear statement of truth. No matter what man tried to do and counterfeit, No matter the origin of the Samaritan people or their counterfeit religion, God always had his plan and he will see that plan come to fruition. It was always supposed to come through Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. God kept a righteous remnant of those Jewish people safe through the whole Babylonian exile and God protected those Jewish people while trying to rebuild Jerusalem through the occupation of the Greeks and now Romans all the way up to the Messiah. No human, no people group or what they believed or what they thought should have happened or will happen changed that or would change that. And guess what? Nothing any human thinks or believes even sincerely and with all their hearts changes God's only way to salvation and eternal life. And nothing is going to stop the messianic king from returning and setting up his perfect kingdom of justice, peace, and righteousness on this earth. That flows directly into what spiritual truth Jesus divulges next. Verses 23 through 24. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You know what? If anyone especially Jewish, had paid attention to what God actually wanted in worship of him for the entirety of the human race, this shouldn't have come as any surprise, nor is this new. Any sacrifices and any offerings anyone brought before God were always to be done out of a heart of love for God and a desire to live for him. That was always the way it was supposed to be. The sacrifices and offerings were never to be the end game, but to simply be an outward manifestation of the love people had for God in their hearts and wanting to live for him in every area of their lives. People always ask the question, how were people saved before Jesus arrived on earth? Maybe you've thought that question before in your lifetime. This was how. Hebrews 11 outlines how all these people in the Old Testament were saved through their faith in God. His promises and the promise of a coming deliverer. It was all a state of their heart. For a lot of them lived before God gave Moses the law, including the list of sacrifices and offerings they were to make in worship of him. In fact, God says to Israel when, they're, when all they're doing is offering sacrifices without any love for him or others, faith or desire to obey him, he tells them this. He says, I want you to show love. Not offer sacrifices. That's not what really means anything to me. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. It was always supposed to be a love for God and a knowing of God. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at here. That there would be a time in the future and that time was already there. When one wouldn't worship God in the temple with animal sacrifices and offerings. It would all be based on one worshiping God, and as he, as he describes it, in spirit and truth. That's how he describes it. So what does Jesus mean by that? Well, Jesus says at the beginning of verse 24 that God the Father is spirit. This is not so much a description for us to understand the physical state of God, but more so the truth that he is everywhere and does not need a temple for one to worship him. In addition to this, since God the Father is spirit, one must worship him in a spiritual way. This starts with the state of one's heart and not any kind of outward ritualistic practice one can do not only that but it must be a spiritual exchange and a spiritual transformation what i mean by that is this paul explains in first corinthians that no human being can find god through human convention that is by scientific discovery philosophical musing or by accidentally stumbling upon him One must have our spiritual eyes opened. The only way for that to happen is for the Holy Spirit Himself to lead us to repentance and therefore lead us to God. Paul also explains in 1 Corinthians that salvation starts and ends with God. It has nothing to do with our intelligence or our will, it has everything to do with the Holy Spirit working in us to lead us to God. Following our repentance, asking for and receiving forgiveness from our sins based on Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection for us, and making Jesus the king over the rest of our lives, also known as a born-again experience, immediately leads to the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling us and making a home within us. From that point forward, the Holy Spirit transforms our lives, hearts, and the entire way we view the world and how we should commune and relate to God. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that when we don't even know how to pray or what to pray for, praying being a spiritual exchange in and of itself, it's the Holy Spirit who communicates with God the Father on our behalf. And instead of us needing a physical temple to worship, in Romans 12, Romans 12 describes how our bodies now become themselves the temples of the Holy Spirit. You see that transformation there? All of this is just the tip of the iceberg by what Jesus means by worshiping in spirit. Before any of this can happen, however, the only way to see the need for repentance as the only basis for coming to God is what Jesus refers to as the truth. We already talked about worshiping in spirit. Now we're talking about worshiping in truth. If one was reading John's gospel, this is not the first time any reader of this gospel over the past 2,000 years has seen this concept. All the way back in the first chapter, John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. The embodiment of God's truth. And for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized... Through Jesus Christ. And then later on Jesus declares about himself. As if he couldn't get any clearer. Jesus told him. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one can come to the father except through me. That is ultimately what Jesus is getting at here. The only way one could now worship God the Father was through Jesus. The one and only truth. Nothing changed from the time Jesus said these words until through now. No amount of candles lit, prayers said, offerings made, shrines built, steps climbed, pilgrimages taken directions faced while praying, dietary rules followed, ancestors prayed to, philosophies followed, good deeds done, money given to charity, none of it matters when it comes to the basis of where you will spend eternity. None of it. The only way to God is by taking Jesus, all he claimed to be, and all he did for yourself. The only way to God is realizing that Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf for your sin is the only foundation you have to stand on and nothing you've done or could do. The only way to God is recognizing that you cannot do anything to make up for your inherent sin and all you can do is repent of it. The only way to God is taking Jesus and Jesus alone as the truth and the authority over your life and surrendering your life to the Holy Spirit's transformative power. The only sacrifice we can make to worship God at this point is the sacrifice of our lives in living to please God as king in every area of them. All of this is what Jesus was getting at when he declared that the only way to worship God is worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So, are we worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Jesus has already told this woman that it's impossible to worship God any other way. Firstly, have we surrendered our lives to the truth of Jesus, who He truly is, and what He's done for us by paying for our sin and rising again to extend eternal life to us through Him alone? Have we surrendered to the truth of Jesus by recognizing the truth about ourselves, that we're all sinners? in need of a savior no matter who we are or what we've done and that is the first step of taking jesus for ourselves and knowing that repent of our sin and the people we are because of that sin have we then asked god for forgiveness of that sin only because jesus paid for it and then made jesus the king over the rest of our lives Then and only then can our spiritual eyes be opened and the Holy Spirit come and indwell us. Then and only then can he start freeing us from our sins, struggles, and addictions. Then and only then can we understand the truth of what God's word is saying to us in any given passage. Then and only then can we see the truth of really what is going on in this chaotic world and the spiritual battles raging on all around us. Then and only then can the Holy Spirit go to work on our lives, our relationships, and our families. And then and only then can we truly please God with our lives, which in truth and reality is the way we worship God. Paul flat out states this exactly, and he says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. I don't think he can get any clearer than that. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. It's very easy to do that. It's very easy to get sucked into that and to let what is going on in the world affect us in our innermost being. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Instead, let God transform you into a new person. By changing the way you think. Then everything else going on in this world is going to be seen in a brand new way. Then you will learn to know God's will for you. Which is good and pleasing and perfect. We worship God every day with the way we live our lives. But God is also set aside one day a week. Called the Lord's Day in the New Testament. The day on which Jesus rose from the dead, bringing to life all the promises and hope of God to us. Even before the close of the writing of the New Testament, the early church recognized the Lord's Day as the first day of the week, Sunday, to set aside and gather together as one to worship God collectively. So today, Christ's church isn't a building It's a people gathered together to praise him and grow in faith in him as one. Now, we're blessed to have a building that God has entrusted to us to gather in. But that's not the worship, as Jesus told the Samaritan woman. It's the people who make up Christ's church, the body of Christ, who seek to live a life of everyday worship, but also gather together might I remind you, as God instructs to bring our worship in the indwelling Holy Spirit and his movement in our body and in the truth of Jesus Christ and his word to us, gathering together as one. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And it all starts and ends with Jesus. Thank God that he has given us this salvation, eternal life. Way to please him. And all of what living water is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these powerful truths you reveal to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit opening our spiritual eyes to actually understand what you're saying here. The woman didn't necessarily... At this point, anyway, understand what you were saying to her. But Lord, you have led us through your Holy Spirit to repentance and surrendering our lives to you through what Jesus did on the cross and rising again for us three days later. We thank you for that, what that hope is that you give to us, that that's just the beginning The repentance and surrendering our lives to you in in asking for forgiveness and making you the king over the rest of our lives is just the beginning. The whole rest of our lives is the Holy Spirit working in us, changing us, freeing us, transforming us, changing the way we view this entire world and the different situations and dilemmas we find ourselves in. And, And surrendering more and more of our worry, and fear and anxiety over to just simply trusting you. I pray that if there's anybody here today that has never taken that step, has never come to you in repentance, I pray that they would heed your call, heed that churning of your Holy Spirit within them right now, and finally come to that place, make that decision, surrender their lives in repentance to you. And Lord, if we've done that, maybe even a long time ago, I pray that you would renew in us that excitement of that living water that we can partake in each and every day as we surrender more and more of our lives to you uh, to please you in every way. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.